Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, for all intents and purposes, it sure seemed like it was a triumphant entry. Everyone from the crowd showed up. Everyone wanted to see what was going to happen. They had heard the things that he had taught. They had seen the things that he had done. If, if they were there, they had heard about the miracles. They had imagined him standing up to the religious leaders just like they had always wanted to do themselves. So they put him on a donkey, but his guys put some cloaks down on the donkey because I think they wanted to imagine it as a mighty steed as he walked in. And the disciples were walking next to it, cheering up the crowds. They were the, they were the hype men. They were stirring up everybody, trying to get everybody excited. If they had boom boxes, they would have had some loud entry music as they were coming in. And the crowds were eating it up. They had heard the things. They were excited to be there. They wanted to see what was going to happen. They were pushing through, trying to get a, a front row seat to everything that was coming. And those that had cloaks, they put them on the ground in front of them. And those that didn't have cloaks, they went to cut down palm branches to lay it on the dirt road so that the dirt road was no longer this road, but more like a red carpet for the king to walk into Jerusalem. And everyone was shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. It, it sure looked like it was a triumphant entry. Now, if you grew up in church or know about the Christian calendar, you know that this Sunday that we're celebrating today is what's known as Palm Sunday. Palm, because of the branches that people cut down to put on the road before Jesus. And many times when we celebrate Palm Sunday, we, we talk about the triumph, right? We celebrate the king. Maybe you grew up in a church where you were given palm branches as you came in so that you can wave and celebrate. If you were expecting that, sorry, we don't have palm branches for you. Maybe this has been a Sunday where you celebrate all the good things that God has done because the king is here. And just like everybody else, we get, to, we get to celebrate. Maybe this Sunday has always been about triumph for you. But five days later, the king was dead. So something happened. We missed something. Now, sure, the... The mobs can get rowdy, but, but this seemed like a pretty quick turnaround. What was going on in Jerusalem? Why were those people there, and why did they turn on them so quickly? And here's a question I want you to be asking as we go through this message today. If you were there, how would you have reacted? With all that you know about Jesus and all that you know about yourself, if you were there, why would you have been there? Why would you have been celebrating? What were you expecting from this king that was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey all those years ago? Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for what this week represents. We're so grateful that Jesus not only came into Jerusalem, but he came all the way to Calvary, to the cross, to die the death that we deserved and to rise from the dead. And would you allow our eyes and our hearts today and this whole Easter week to have our eyes fixed on you. And Lord, today we want to hear your voice. We want to be changed by your word. So if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, would you take it out of my mind? And if there's anything you want to come and say, would you come and speak? Because we know that 
the only thing that will happen in power today is if we encounter Jesus. So would you come and speak in Jesus' name? Amen. Well, I also want to welcome you here to the chapel. If we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the sending director. I've been teaching here at Segan. And if we've not met, I would love a chance to shake your hand. I'll be out in the lobby at the end of the service today. And as we've been thinking and moving towards the Easter season and thinking about this triumphal entry, as it's known, that Jesus comes into Jerusalem on, on Palm Sunday, I've been thinking a lot about those that were there. Right? We, we hear about these crowds, we, we picture this scene of all these people. I don't know how many people were there. Uh, some scholars actually estimate that the people that would show up to Jerusalem for Pentecost in that whole holiday season could have been as high as 2.7 million people. I don't know how many of them actually lined the streets, but there was a lot of people there. And the question that's been rolling around in my mind is, why were they there? Why were they cheering? Why were they celebrating? What were the expectations? What was the anticipation like? And then I want to ask the honest question, what would my reaction have been? If I was there, what would my responses have been? And I think these are important questions because five days later, he was dead. The same people that were chanting, Hosanna, just a few days later were the same people shouting, crucify him. Now, I don't think that they were probably all the same people. There were some probably... Some that opted out of part two, but I imagine that a lot of the people would have been the, the same. So what was, what was going on in those five days? We're going to be in John 12 today, and the first 11 chapters of John, three years of Jesus' life. The last 10 chapters, one week. So there's a lot going on there that, that happens that, that John sees as important and wants everything to be there. But in the first 11 chapters, we got to really see who Jesus was. We got to see the things that he said. We got to see the things that he did. We heard the provocative words that he taught. We got to see him touch people that would never be touched, love people that no one would love. We saw him turn water into wine, walk on water, feed 5,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. And then in chapter 11, we actually saw him raise a dude from the dead. Lazarus had been dead for four days. And they were waiting to seal up the tomb because they were waiting for Jesus to come because they were expecting him to mourn. They were really good friends. And when Jesus got there, he, he wept because of his sadness. But then he stood up and cleared his throat. And just with one phrase, Lazarus, come out. The dead dude who was there for four days starting to stink wakes up, puts his prison gar or his, his burial garments to the side and walks out. The disciples were there. There were a lot of people that were there and his reputation began to spread. Now, they didn't have the New Testament to read the stories. They, they didn't have the internet to actually figure out what was all going on, but you've got to imagine that people would have been talking. They, they had already been talking about this rabbi. They had already been talking about all of the things that he was doing and, and how he had turned the world upside down, things that no one had ever seen, saying things that no one had ever said, standing up to people that no one ever stood up to. The disciples were there, so they were telling people there were some Jews that were there that the text in John 11 says they decided to believe in Jesus after what they had seen. And there were other Jews that were there that didn't believe, and they ran and told the Pharisees, the religious leaders. 
So things began to spread to the point uh, the Pharisees decided, all right, enough is enough. It's time to kill him. We've been trying to stop him, but now we have to kill him. So the text ends in John 11 with, with uh, John telling us that Jesus no longer walked openly. That is, until that first Palm Sunday when he, when he entered Jerusalem. So that's the backdrop of our story. People were there. They saw some cool things. Everyone else had been hearing about things. They knew Jesus was coming into Jerusalem. And everybody showed up because they wanted to see what happens next. They came out in mass. And now we pick up where, where Dave already read for us in John chapter 12. The verses will be on the screen. Starting in verse 12, it says, The next day the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the King of Israel! And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. So the crowds were there. The scene was set. But again, my question is why? Why were they there? What were they expecting to see? And what was Jesus going to do next? Now, we get some clues about why they may have been there in the phrase that they said. They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king of Israel. Now, that word Hosanna is an interesting one. Now, the, the New Testament was originally written in the Greek language. So when the English translators saw that word Hosanna, instead of translating it into a word that would make sense to us, they just took the Greek word that was there and sounded it out with English letters, and that was Hosanna. But the Greek authors were just quoting the Hebrew speakers while they were chanting. So the Greeks, or the, the author actually did the same thing. He took a Hebrew word, sounded it out in Greek, and then wrote it down. It's a Hebrew word originally, and it only appears in the Old Testament one time. Back in Psalm 118, verse 25, that Aaron read for us, at the beginning, it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So what the word Hosanna means is save us. It's a word that originally had the connotation of, hey, we're in danger and we need someone to come to our rescue. But just like words do in, in our vernacular, words change over time. So to the people of Israel, uh, very quickly, Hosanna began to leave the connotation of we're in danger, we need help. And it started to become a celebration of help that was coming. So it stopped being a request for salvation and it started being more like, hooray, salvation is on its way. So, so that's what they would have been saying, right? Hosanna, hooray, salvation is here. The guy that we have been waiting for, this is finally him. So that's their mindset. Salvation is coming. They're excited. But again, what did they mean by that? What did they mean by being excited that salvation is coming? Of course, we know that they're right. As we look back, we know that Jesus is God's salvation that is available to the whole world. But 
what was their expectation? What were they celebrating? Well, Paul gives, or, uh, John gives us some interesting insight into the expectations of those who are there. There are actually four groups of people that he talks about that I want to kind of unpack a little bit what their expectations might have been. And again, I want you to think through this through the lens of what would your reaction have been? And maybe a better question is what would you be, have been expecting of Jesus? What would have made you excited to celebrate Jesus? Would you have been there just to see what was going on? Would you have been there because you were assuming he could do something for you? And we're going to see different reactions to this triumphal entry. So again, back in verse 16, we read this. At first, his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him, when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. And then I added on a couple verses that Dave didn't read, and it's in verse 20 it says, now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. And they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with the request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, the first group that we see John talk about is the disciples. These were the, the key people that were with Jesus from the beginning. They got to see the miracles. They got to hear the teaching. They got to be in the uh, kind of after meeting where they got to hear Jesus explain the hard things that he said. They were the ones that walked with him the whole time, and, and they were the ones that got a chance to be a part of the late-night conversations that the Bible doesn't give us insight into. I, I would love to know how Jesus and his dudes just hung out and the things that they talked about, but they got so much more insight from being with them for these three years. So you would imagine that if anybody understood what was going on, it would have been the disciples. But what John says about them is that the disciples didn't understand him. The disciples didn't understand him. They were excited to be there. They were stirring up the crowds. They were getting everyone excited. And they definitely had some expectations. They definitely thought they knew what was happening, but John says they did not understand. So what was it that they misunderstood? Now, throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the different accounts of Jesus' life, we get to see some insight into some of the things that they were expecting. We saw the kind of the number one guy, Peter, right? The guy that Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church. This, the leader of the church after Jesus dies. We get to see that guy rebuke Jesus, right? In Matthew 16, verse 21, he says, it says this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. Note to self. Don't do something to make Jesus call me Satan. Get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely 
human concerns. Now, Peter for sure had a plan for Jesus. Jesus was going to be king. He was going to rule from an earthly throne, and Peter was going to be number two. It was a good plan, and Jesus couldn't go and get himself dead. That wouldn't help this whole thing. James and John were no better. Maybe they were a little worse. They sent their mom to take care of this. And in verse 20, it says this, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, which is James and John, came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. And she said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and and the other on your left in your kingdom. Now they assumed that Jesus was going to take over the power dynamics in the world, that he was going to rule from an earthly throne, and they wanted to get in on the action. So they sent their mom, which I think is hilarious. Either that or this is the first recorded helicopter parent that just kind of pulled them along and be like, no, 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 we need you on the throne. This is really going to help the Zebedees, right? So that's, I don't know exactly how that played out, but when the other disciples heard about it, they were, they were upset. And I don't think they were upset because they thought it was an inappropriate ask. I think they were upset because they didn't think of it first. Right, because everybody's trying to jockey for position. These are the guys that are trying to talk among themselves about who's the greatest. Right? So the disciples didn't understand what was going on. Even after Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't get it yet. They had spent 40 days with him after the resurrection, before he ascended. And right before he ascended, the disciples asked him in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? What are they asking? They're saying, excuse me, Jesus, we've been living in tents for a while. Um, it's been a hard life. Really appreciate the multiplication of food. Um, You're providing for us really good, but isn't it time for us to be in the palace? Isn't it time for us to finally get what's coming to us? Isn't it time for us to rule with you? What didn't the disciples understand? They thought that following Jesus was their ticket to power, their ticket to rulership. These were all Jewish Men that had been oppressed and their families for generations have been oppressed and they were tired of it. And they were like, no, no, this is finally the guy. This is the guy that's going to get us out of all of this. They didn't understand at the time that it was about service and sacrifice and suffering and a mission to bring the message of Jesus to this world. They thought, no, now it's time for our, us to get ours. So what about you? Are you following Jesus because of the, the reputation or the status that it, it may give? Or are you following Jesus? Would you show up at Palm Sunday to be chanting Hosanna because you're excited about being close to Jesus so that you're going to be able to actually live the life that you've been looking for, live the comfortable life, live the life of status, live the life of power because of our association to Jesus? Are we praising the king that gave up his position to pay the price that we 
had earned? And are we responding accordingly? The next group that John shows us is the crowds. Here's what he says about them. In verse 17, now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that he had performed this sign, went out to meet them. Now John tells us that the crowds that were there were gathered for a purpose. They had heard what Jesus has done, and they were ready to see what happens next. The crowds wanted a sign from him. They weren't there for him. They wanted to see the next act. They wanted to see what happened next. And and we get a little bit more insight into where their minds and hearts were when we actually read the thing that they were chanting, right? They said, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting Psalm 118, verse 25. But then they kind of slipped in a little something else. Blessed is the king of Israel. That was not in the psalm. That was just something else that they added. And that shows us a little bit of what they were wanting. Like the Israelites, they were, or like the disciples, they were Israelites that had been oppressed and persecuted for thousands of years. They were slaves under the Babylonians. They were slaves under the Persians, under the Greeks, and now under the Romans. They had lived a hard life for generations and generations, but they knew that they were God's chosen people. They knew that the king was coming. They knew that God had promised to send this Messiah, and they assumed that the Messiah was coming for them, to give them the life that they assumed that they wanted, to overthrow their enemies and reestablish Israel as the pinnacle of the kingdoms of the world. They wanted peace. They wanted freedom. They wanted land. They wanted riches. They wanted a king like David to bring Israel back to where they had once been. So the crowds definitely had expectations. They wanted a political ruler. They wanted a military champion. They wanted a miracle worker. They wanted that person because of what he could do for them. So when they were chanting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, hooray, salvation is here. They were right, but they just assumed it was going to be salvation from their disappointments, salvation from their discontent. Salvation from their mixed expectations that they had been living under. What about you? Do we follow Jesus because of the things that we assume that he's going to do for us? Do we follow Jesus because we assume that we now have access to come and get the things that we want to have the political ruler, the the wish granter, someone to give us the comforts that we seek? Or are we praising the king that that sacrificed and suffered and, and was persecuted and died and said, if they persecute me, they will persecute you? 
The third group that John points us to is the Pharisees, the, the religious leaders who were there. And this is what he says about them. So the Pharisees said to one another, see, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, the Pharisees have been trying to silence Jesus for a while. Throughout the Gospels, we got to see them send all these teachers of the law and lawyers and super smart people to try to trap Jesus in something that he said so they could finally say, aha, I knew it, you are not from God. And every time they did that, the super smart person was left speechless. Jesus always had an answer that left everyone in awe until finally they got to a point where they just stopped asking him questions and they started thinking about how to kill him. But this whole time, the Pharisees tried to stop him. This whole time, the Pharisees tried to stop him. And given this whole triumphal entry and palm branch parade, they started realizing, I don't think it's working. Look at how many people are out here. Everything that we've been trying to do to silence this guy, it seems like it's getting worse. And all those people that used to come to us for advice, all those people that used to come to us to know God, all those people that used to invite us to the parties, all those people that wanted to spend time with us, they're not going after him. And not only are they going after him, but they are showing them that we're really kind of in this for ourselves, not for God. Ultimately, the Pharisees were jealous. The Pharisees had a great life. Lots of people would come after them. Now, I would imagine that no one in here is purposefully trying to stop the agenda of Jesus, like the Pharisees. But there are things inherent within us that naturally arise within us that are very similar to the things that come into the heart and the mind of the Pharisees. Because we too have a standard. We too have an idea of the things you need to think, the things you need to say, the things you need to wear, the things that you need to do in, in order to be considered one of us. And we see it on social media all the time. When, when a Christian goes out of line, especially one that's public, everybody pounces on them and goes to social media to try to tell the world how bad of a Christian they are. Cancel culture is alive in the church just like it is out in the world. We live in a culture where if somebody says something that we don't agree with, they're a heretic. Don't listen to anything that they say. We live in a world where if someone makes a crazy mistake that we're all tempted to do, they are thrown to the wolves, eviscerated on the internet, and we just turn our backs. My mom always used to say that Christians are the best at shooting our wounded. So what I see in the Pharisees is this is cancel culture before it was cool. This is the Pharisees seeing someone who's gaining a following that they don't agree with. So like we need to stop them. But they went a little more extreme. Instead of jumping on Twitter, they incited a mob and used a Roman cross. And I wonder, I have this thought often, if Jesus showed up at one of our church services, would we welcome him? Because I don't know if he'd look the part. I don't know if he'd smell the part. I don't know if he'd vote the part. 
And he said some things that were pretty provocative. He, he said some things that often would offend people. And I wonder, just like the Pharisees, if he would mess up our status quo of what Christianity and religion really is supposed to be. No, it wouldn't, we wouldn't be like the Pharisees. We wouldn't try to stop him. But sometimes we just stop listening to him. And I wonder what it would really look like if we took Jesus' words to be true. So the triumphal entry sure seemed to be triumphant. It had all the makings of a, of a great royal parade with all the pomp and circumstance. But Jesus was coming humbly. Jesus came riding on a donkey. Jesus wasn't concerned with the agenda of the crowd because he knew what his father had sent him to do. He knew why he was there. And he would spend the next five days and 10 chapters of John saying some really provocative, really offensive things that would finally get him killed. And it didn't take long for people to realize that the king that they had expected and the king that they wanted wasn't the king that was riding on that donkey that day. And it's the same thing that we need to recognize because he didn't come for their comfort. He came for their consolation. He didn't come for their earthly freedom. He came for their freedom from sin. He didn't come for their country. He came for the world. He didn't come to rule from an earthly throne. He came to overthrow from a Roman cross. He didn't come so that we can have the good life. He came to make a way for eternal life. This is our king who is coming. And all of those things that they expected, that, that triumphant king that is going to come, he will come. He will come again. And that time he doesn't come like a lamb. That time he comes with a white robe dripped in blood with a sword out of his mouth. That triumphant king is coming. But that king that rode in humbly on that donkey did not come to rule from an earthly throne. He came to pay the price that we could never pay on our own. There was one more group that was there. We don't know a lot about them, but from what I read in the story, I think they have the posture that we should all be taking this Easter season. In verse 20, it says this, Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Now, these Greeks were not Jews. This was a completely different nationality. And to the other Jews that were around, to most of the Jews, maybe all of the Jews, the, the reason the Messiah was coming was for them. He was not going to be a Messiah that was for the world. He was to be a Messiah, a king that was for the Jews. And some of the most offensive things that Jesus said to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Jewish elite, were the numerous occasions where Jesus says, it's not just for you that I came. It's always been for the world. It's always been for the nations. It's always been for every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And these Greeks, they represent the nations. And for everyone in this room that is not ethnically Jewish, these Greeks represent us. Because if Jesus was not welcoming of the world, if Jesus was not welcoming of the nations, if he wasn't welcoming of anybody who wasn't ethnically Jewish, then none of us would be here. 
But because Jesus welcomes the Greeks, I can come to him. And you can come to him. And how did those Greeks come? Well, the Greeks humbly sought him. They just wanted to see him. They just wanted to be in the room. They just wanted to see what he was going to do next. They weren't coming with their agenda. They were coming for him. They didn't come with the pomp and circumstance and palm branches. They, they came around to the back room and said, can, can we just see him? Can we just be in his presence? That is the posture, I think, that we should all come with this Easter season. And this same author, John, who is writing this account for us, wrote that famous verse in John chapter 3, verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. It had always been about the world. It should not have been a surprise that the Messiah needed to come to lay down his life and that that sacrifice was going to be for the world. For all of the Old Testament and all of the history of Israel, over and over and over again, God makes clear what he's doing. It was always to use Israel as his people, as his tool, as his mouthpiece, so that the world would know Yahweh. And now that same responsibility is here for the church as we lean in and humbly seek Jesus so that we could just see him, so that we could just know his agenda, so that we can just follow him. So what about you? If you were there, how would you have reacted? Why do you come to Jesus? What are you expecting? What are you wanting to celebrate? Because Jesus' agenda is pretty clear. He was coming to die the death that we deserved. He was coming to lay down his life for every single man, woman, and child that entered this world full of sin and rebellion. This is our king. The king that looked from his throne and saw you and didn't say, man, I wish they'd try harder. But a king that stepped off his throne and mounted a donkey and rode into the center of town through thousands or millions, I don't know, people shouting because of an agenda that was not his, but he kept his eyes fixed on where he was going. He knew why he was there. He was there to die for me, to die for you. This is our king. So this Easter week, let me encourage you to humbly seek Jesus. To seek him for his agenda. Not for ours. Come to him for what he's done, not what we hope he will do. To come to him for his goodness, his love, his sacrifice, and his plan, and the life that we get to plug into because... He not only died on that cross, but he defeated death to rise from the dead. That is what this week represents. 
So yes, let's celebrate. Yes, let's wave palm branches. Less let's use, yes, let's use pomp and circumstance, but not because we think that we finally have somebody that's going to give us the life that we want, but because the king has come to give us what we need to die for us, to raise from the dead so that we can have life eternal with him. So let me encourage you to come back to this room Friday at 6.30 p.m. and proclaim that death together to celebrate Good Friday. And Good Friday is only good because Sunday is coming. And it's on that Sunday that he finally rose from the dead, defeating life, defeating death forever so that it never again has to be on what we can do to follow him, how good we can be, how many rules that we can follow, how many sacrifices that we can make, but just so that we can open our hands and receive what he has done for us. That is our king. And that is what Easter is about. Let me pray for us. Father, we're so grateful for Jesus. We're so grateful that you not only came, not only lived a perfect life, but you died the death that we deserved and you defeated death by rising from the dead. And no matter where our minds and our hearts are today, would you allow that truth to sink in, to change who we are? And would you give our minds and hearts focus as we look towards this Easter week, that we would be reminded of why this is significant, reminded that we could do none of this on our own. So we give you thanks and glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.